So this morning, we will continue our study of Moses as a hero of the faith. Moses is arguably the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 says, Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, who the Lord singled out face to face. So this morning, we will continue to look at Moses' leadership of the Hebrew nation, where through God's power, he leads them in crossing the Red Sea, in traversing through the wilderness for 40 years, where as God's mediator, he delivered the Ten Commandments, where they built the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle and brought them to the precipice of entering the Promised Land, where he died at the age of 120. And this story is filled with valuable applications regarding trusting and obeying God, as well as persevering in the face of challenges. And most importantly, the life of Moses calls us to Jesus. So this morning, we are going to consider seven details to help us understand why Moses was a hero of the faith. And more importantly, how do those events impact our walk with Christ today? We're going to look at crossing the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, the rebelliousness, unfaithfulness, and idolatry of the Israelites, the building of the tabernacle. We're going to look at comparisons of Moses to Jesus. We're going to look at the Jews' rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And then we're going to look at Moses' final reflections as he gazes out onto the promised land. After 400 years in Egypt, the Israelites were formidable in number, although they were enslaved by the Egyptians. Their persecution led to their crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And God answered their cries as he does ours today. He empowered Moses as the man to confront Pharaoh and lead the Israelites to freedom. And God performed many miracles through Moses. And God's miracles demonstrated to the Israelites that he was the one true God and all other gods were powerless. God tells us in Exodus 9-1 why he desires his chosen people to be free. It reads, let my people go that they may worship me. So building on that verse then, we can see three primary reasons that God saved the Israelites. One is because it is through this nation that ultimately Jesus, the Messiah, would be born. Second, God desired to be worshipped and to dwell amongst his people. And third, <clears throat> third, to build a nation built on his love and goodness. God, through Moses, transformed the world as it existed at that time. God is the perfection of truth, of goodness, of love, of justice, of forgiveness, and righteousness. Therefore, once the Israelites were freed from bondage, God began developing them into a righteous nation. First, by giving them the Ten Commandments to establish God's laws and values among his people, as well as building the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant so that God could dwell in the midst of his people. And at the end of a 40-year journey through the desert, the Israelites finally enter the Promised Land. And through all these events, Moses became a tremendous leader. He frequently wrestled with the Israelites' discontent, with their blasphemy, with their rebelliousness, their worshiping other gods. Pretty much 40 years of whining and complaining about everything, even though God provided for their every need throughout the entire journey. Yet Moses' great leadership, empowered by the hand of God, kept that Hebrew nation together. God's miracles were on frequent display. 
But the Israelites seemed to latch on to what have you done for us lately as their motto. So much so that only two Israelites at the time of their escape from Egypt, two adult Israelites at the time of their escape, Joshua and Caleb, actually lived to enter the promised land. Last week, we learned that Moses reluctantly answered God's call on his life. Like many of us, Moses at first resisted a call from God to perform some assignment. Like many of us, you know, he resisted and we often resist to step into a gap that God has chosen for us to fill. To perhaps alter our life's trajectory in obedience to his calling. We are often overwhelmed at the thought of having the qualities or traits to be successful and achieve God's aim for our life. Yet what we see in Moses is exactly what we will see in our lives when we move, as we discussed last week, from who am I to here I am and answer God's call on our life. When we do, knowing that God is with us, our obedience grows, our faith grows, our trust in the Lord grows, and our courage to step out in his name grows. And if God is with us, success is assured. Moses' accomplishments were beyond his imagination. And yet he remained a humble man throughout his life as a leader of the Hebrew nation. Moses learned to first obey and then trust God. And that to be an instrument of God, we cannot focus on serving ourselves. And this is one of the great lessons that we receive from Moses' story. And how God worked in Moses' life is how he works in our lives too. He desires that we trust him and that we obey him. Moses is a great example of when we practice these two commands, a beautiful cycle begins. Trusting the Lord makes obedience easier, and obedience produces ever-increasing trust. And Moses went through many cycles of obedience followed by trust. And we may feel as if we're right in step with God, until he proposes a change of direction, a new trajectory for our lives. And often that's when our resistance kicks in. And with it, the realization that maybe we aren't as close to God as we thought. That maybe as long as the journey is light and easy, we are fine with our walk. Our decision determines whether the Lord will be able to use us as he desires. And because Moses never lost his commitment, he continued to serve the Lord for all the days of his life. Now, I imagine that none of us want to be remembered or judged for our worst days. And let's note here amidst the platitudes for Moses that when Moses grew up, he became angry and he killed an Egyptian and then sought refuge in the desert for 40 years. And yet God used Moses in spite of his sin, a great sin. And yet God forgave him and used him in a powerful way. And the message that we can take from this is whatever we have done in the past that we might think is keeping us separated from God will be forgiven if we repent. The Bible is filled with stories of God using broken people as he did with Moses. And throughout these texts, we will see that when we look at Moses, we are looking at a shadow of a better and greater Moses, Jesus Christ. God's redemption of the Hebrews from Egypt and their 40-year journey to the promised land is a foreshadowing of God's redemptive plan for the world accomplished through Jesus' life and ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. Last week, we ended with the Israelites camped by the Red Sea with the Egyptian army in close pursuit. So let's begin reading from Exodus 
14. I'm going to be skipping through some verses here, but we're going to start in Exodus 14, verse 16. And the Lord said, Moses, pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And now in verse 21. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. And the wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. And now in verse 26, when all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again, and then the waters will rush back, cover the Egyptians and their chariots and their charioteers. And now in verse 31, when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. And they put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, that would have been some sight to see, wouldn't it? God's faithfulness and power once again on display. The Hebrews were eyewitnesses to God's protection over them through ten plagues that ravaged the Egyptians but left the Hebrews untouched. And now the miracle of parting the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army. And after these events, surely there would be, never be another day where the Hebrews would doubt God's protection and provision. You would think that the Israelites would be doing a happy dance about their freedom and ready to be relentlessly obedient to God. If only that were true. Moses gained a great reputation as a leader, not because he was leading a merry band of followers, but because the Hebrews will prove to be an ungrateful, rebellious people who, despite their freedom from centuries of bondage, were to be called by God himself a stiff-necked people, meaning they were prideful, haughty, stubborn, and disobedient. In the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy over the next 40 years, the Israelites will complain and rebel against God 15 times. Despite witnessing miracle after miracle, their faith was shallow. Now, isn't this interesting uh, to think about? I mean, how many times in our walk with Christ have we asked for a visible miracle? We might say, oh, God, just make this happen. Just this one time, let me see a visible miracle to strengthen my faith. And we are pretty much convinced that if we ever witnessed a miracle like the parting of the Red Sea, then we would be the most ardent believers for the rest of our lives. Yet, <clears throat> that doesn't seem to be the reality, does it? The story demonstrates that witnessing a miracle can actually produce the opposite behavior and create within us an expectation or desire for God to just keep proving himself through another miracle and then another. And the reality is that faith is actually a much stronger driving force than witnessing a miracle. Although it's counterintuitive, we learn through this story that no amount of miracles can build up the faith of the rebellious Hebrew nation. But there were consequences. When they first approached the promised land, near the beginning of their wilderness travels, like a couple of years into their travels, God told them to cross the Jordan River and defeat the armies of, the presently of those presently occupying the land. But they were fearful. And despite God's assurances that he would be with them, they quickly lost their trust and faith in God as their protector. And a result of this refusal to trust the Lord and move forward to conquering the tribes occupying the promised land, the Israelites were consigned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 
For their unfaithfulness, the entire adult generation of Hebrews would never see the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey that God had promised to give them. And another lesson to be learned here is that opportunities are always lost when we let fear overrule our faith. When God calls you to a task, instead of giving in to your fears, choose to rely on him and his promises. By moving forward in faith, despite your feelings of inadequacy, you will discover the Lord's faithfulness. He will always empower us for the work that he calls us to do. But is it true that we have not maybe seen miracles in our lifetime? I think the truth is that everyone in this room who has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior has not only seen a miracle but experienced a miracle. We are all recipients of the miracle of a changed life. Look around at those sitting near you this morning. You are looking at the faces of others who have changed the trajectory of their life only through the saving power of Jesus Christ. And our miracle may not be as impressive as the parting of the Red Sea, yet we are God's handiwork. And he took our filthy rags and our pride and our sin, and he made us into his image. And we each have our own testimony, and aren't we all in agreement that God has done a miraculous thing in our lives? And now we go forward in obedience and faith. Now let's look at a couple of examples of the Israelites' behavior that as we shall see, at times angered God, at times angered Moses, and often forced God's hand at pouring out judgment against his chosen people. In Exodus 16, when the Israelites departed the Red Sea and entered the wilderness, they first headed to Shur, called S-H-U-R. And for three days they could not find water. And at Marah the waters were bitter. So they grumbled and cried out to the Lord and complained. And so the Lord instructed Moses to throw a tree into the water. And the waters became drinkable. Another miracle. And then they traveled to the wilderness of sin. And yes, S-I-N, that's the word. I wouldn't want to go to that wilderness. And there they complained again. And reading from Exodus 16 verse 3, they replied... If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Now just think about that for a second. They were in bondage for centuries in Egypt. And for over a hundred years, Pharaoh was trying to have the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, to murder every male Hebrew that was born. And now they're complaining, and they want to go back. Pretty amazing. And in verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I am going to rain down food from heaven for you. So now continuing in verse 8, then Moses added, the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard all your complaints against him. And then Moses and Aaron kind of combined said, what have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. So we see here that Moses was careful to ensure that he and Aaron were not taking credit for God's miracles. However, the Israelites will continue to frequently be harsh toward Moses, even though God was in full control. So after two months from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness, and they set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. So reading from Exodus 19, beginning in verse 7. 
So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord had commanded. And so Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. And now if we jump up to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. And there was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn and all the people trembled. And all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. And the smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln and the whole mountain shook violently. And as the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. And this now brings us to the morning where God spoke the Ten Commandments from the mountaintop to the Israelites. One of the most important and profound events in the Old Testament. Now, how long has it been since you've read and been reminded of these commandments? We're going to take a look at them this morning. So reading from Exodus 20, verse 3, says, You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. In verse 7, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And now in verse 12, honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, these commandments were the beginning of what became the law. And it is important to note that these 10 commands ultimately became 613 laws that the Jews were to keep to remain sinless. Now, we acknowledged earlier that God is a righteous God and he desires to build a righteous nation that worships him. And these commandments were revolutionary in the world at that time. And they informed the Israelites then, and even us today, about what is good for us, about what is good for society. And these commandments ushered in for the first time in the world the idea of a monotheistic God. This was countercultural to every other nation on earth at that time. In the Ten Commandments, we see God's plan for an amicable and just society that does not harm one another, where all people have worth regardless of social status. This, too, was countercultural in the world. God cares about justice and mercy. God wants people to get along, to care for each other, and treat each other with kindness and respect. And after receiving the covenant, Moses and the Israelites faced the task of living by its stipulations. And this is how we get to those 613 laws. This called for interpretations of those commands. And so in Exodus 21 to 23, Moses began issuing ordinances that were given to him by God for all these specific situations. Breaches of the covenant necessitated means of atonement which in turn meant the provision of a priesthood to function at sacrifices and in worship. <clears throat> in short, the rudiments of the whole Jewish religion, according to tradition, originated there at Mount Sinai. Now, the Ten Commandments remain today as one of the greatest events, not only from the Exodus story, but in the history of mankind. And in the New Testament, these commands were superseded with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. And yet, each of these commands remain for Christians as a guidepost 
for righteous living. The Ten Commandments contain no abstract moral principles, such as be a good person. Without specific guidance, such abstraction leaves it to people to determine their own goodness. And don't we see plenty of evidence of that in our culture today? Each one of these commandments is in the singular, emphasizing the words are directed to each person individually. God desires that society be composed of individuals doing what is right. The Ten Commandments constitute a form of what is called absolute morality. Moral truths depend entirely upon the existence of a moral source higher than mankind. If there is no God, then all notions of right and wrong are subjective. In America today, we are challenged by moral absolutes being in a war with moral relativism, which holds that morality is not universal, but determined by each individual or each society. And haven't we all heard what you think is, is wrong is wrong for you, and what I think is wrong is wrong for me. We are witnessing the destruction of our moral society. In the New Testament, the only commandment that is not directly supported is the observance of the Sabbath. But it can be argued that Western civilization has paid a serious price for letting go of the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. Matthew 22, verse 37. I'll give you a second if you want to turn there. Jesus was asked, which is the greatest law? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So at God's leading, one of Moses' greatest acts of leadership and commitment was the delivery of and steadfastness in embedding these commandments into the lives of the Israelites and the Hebrew society. Following the Ten Commandment pronouncement to the Hebrew nation, Moses was called by God to again ascend up to Mount Sinai. And Moses climbed higher up the mountain and disappeared up into the cloud, and he remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain. So they asked Aaron, who was kind of second behind Moses, his older brother, make us some gods who can lead us. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the next day, the people sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry, which is a polite way of saying they indulged in sexual orgy. So then in Exodus 32, verse 7, the Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought, notice God is saying your people, whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way that I commanded them to live. It took them like a few days, that's all. So we just read that the nation of Israel had committed themselves to following all of God's decrees, and yet here they are disobeying yet again. And God's anger toward the Hebrews was greatly aroused. And then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious, in verse 9, these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. And then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. 
Oh, Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? And in verse 12, Moses pleads with God to turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you've threatened against your people. And I find verse 14 to be interesting and also comforting. It said, so the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. So when we look for examples of Moses' humility, this is a wonderful testimony of how Moses refused God's offer to make a great nation from his offspring. He resisted the temptation, but he was incensed at the rebellious Hebrews. So now in verse 19, when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf in the dancing, and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets, which had the Ten Commandments on them, to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made, and he burned it, and then he ground it in the powder. He threw it in the water, and he forced all of those people who were, who were worshiping that golden calf to drink it. I think that's really awesome because it's pretty hard to think about worshiping a God that you drink, right? And now in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin. And in verse 32, but now if you will only forgive their sin, he's speaking to God, but if not erase my name from the record you have written, so Moses is again pleading with the Lord saying, if you're not going to forgive them, then erase my name too from the record. Another sort of indication of this humility that Moses had. And also how much he loved the Hebrew nation and how much he, he just wanted to lead them successfully. And in verse 33, but the Lord replied to Moses, no. I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. You know, one of Moses' most remarkable characteristics was his concern for the Hebrews in spite of their stubborn, rebellious ways. When they reverted to worshiping a golden calf, God was ready to disown them and begin anew with Moses and his descendants. But Moses rejected the offer, and later when pleading for the forgiveness of people, he even asked to have his own name blotted out of God's book of remembrance, if the Lord would only forgive those Israelites. But no, again, just a great example of his humility. And now that God had established rules through the Ten Commandments and then beginning to push that out into other laws that helped guide how those laws were to be uh, maintained, uh, then he was ready... Uh, he was ready then to begin the process of being able to once again dwell with his creation. You know, in Genesis, God created Adam and Eve, and he spent time with them dwelling in the garden. Now, we should not take this for granted. It was unheard of for a God to want to mingle with man. This is a wonderful reminder that while all other religions are about man reaching up to God. Christianity is about God reaching down to man. And so it was during this time that the Lord gave Moses instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. And the Lord instructed Moses to set up the tabernacle, place the Ark of the Covenant inside, and install the inner curtain to enclose the Ark within the most holy place. And once they completed the tabernacle, we read in, verse, uh, in chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now the Hebrews' lack of faith and disobedience changed the journey that would have only required several months into a 40-year wandering in the wilderness. And during these four decades, however, God, through his servant, Moses gave the Jewish people their laws, which began with the Ten Commandments, a place of worship, 
the tabernacle, the manner of worship, a sacrificial system, as well as their religious leaders, priests and Levites, and social customs, including food restrictions and festivals and marriage and legal systems. So in a sense, in the desert, they became a new and structured society through Moses' leadership. Unfortunately, Moses disobeyed God on one occasion, and like the generation that left Egypt with him, God would not permit Moses to enter the promised land. I don't really need to drink the water. I just like to have you all in suspense out there. (laughs) So as you might imagine, it isn't too difficult to connect this story to the story of Jesus. You know, last week we began to make some comparisons. Exodus is a story of humanity held captive and then rescued by God's decisive action on their behalf. Now that would be a pretty solid Definition of the gospel, wouldn't it? We are held captive by sin. God acts decisively through Jesus, and we are rescued from bondage and restored. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And this promised prophet is the Messiah. Jesus fulfills that promise. Moses was a great prophet, but Jesus would be the truer and greater prophet. Now, here are some of the similarities in their stories. The role Moses plays in delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians and leading them to the promised land foreshadows Jesus is bringing salvation to humanity. Moses and Jesus were both hidden as babies because the leaders of the time wanted them dead. Before beginning their ministry, both Moses and Jesus had a supernatural moment in which God prepared them to go forth. Moses met God at the burning bush, and Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, where the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Moses spent 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai receiving the law and fasting. As we read earlier, Jesus spent 40 days, and I mean, so we read about Moses. Jesus spent 40 days and nights fasting in the desert, resisting the temptation of the devil. Moses worked as a shepherd of livestock in Midian, and Jesus was born in a manger and came to be a shepherd of men. Moses parted the Red Sea, and Jesus calmed the Sea of Galilee and even walked on the water. Moses offered water to Jethro's daughters, and Jesus offered water to the Samaritan woman. Moses fed the Israelites through the miracle of manna and quail, and Jesus fed the 5,000 by dividing loaves of bread and fish. God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, and Jesus promised in his words, To fulfill that law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a new law, expanding on the true essence of the Mosaic law and addressing the importance of one's heart being right with God. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So both Moses and Jesus were close to God, Moses talked face-to-face with God and had to cover his face afterward because it was illuminated. Jesus is the Son of God and part of the Trinity. And while on earth, he experienced the transfiguration and his face shone brightly. And Moses also appeared with Elijah at the transfiguration. Moses initiated the Passover tradition so the Israelites might remember how God delivered them from the Egyptians. And at his last Passover meal, Jesus instituted communion so that his followers would remember how his sacrifice saved them from their sins. These countless comparisons, there's more, demonstrating the connection between Moses and Jesus is no coincidence. Moses was a savior of the Israelites intended to foreshadow the only 
true Savior, Jesus Christ. And while there are numerous similarities between Moses and Jesus, there is one major difference. Moses was only human. Due to his faith in God, he did many amazing things, but ultimately, he was still a sinner in need of forgiveness. Jesus, on the other hand, is both human and God. He lived a perfect life and defeated sin, and it is through faith in him that we can be forgiven and receive salvation. The story of Moses is tethered to Christ. Moses was a great man, yes, but one who was a shadow of a true and better Moses, the shadow of a greater one yet to come, Jesus Christ. So let us not make the mistake of putting Moses on a pedestal, but rather look to the one that he was pointing us to all along, Jesus Christ. Now, when we consider all of these comparisons, it makes it even more difficult to understand to this day why the Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. You know, the entire story of the Exodus, Moses in the establishment of the Hebrew nation, points ultimately to Jesus. Jesus came to the Jewish people and presented himself as the promised Messiah. We spoke earlier about the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws. A man could be saved by keeping the law, but he would have to keep all of it. And when he broke just one part of it, immediately he would fall into sin and be lost. The purpose of the law is to show us that we are sinners and to reveal to us our lost condition. These laws were intended by God to shine a light on Jesus, yet the Jews did not, and still to this day, do not see the light. The Gospel of John addresses how Jesus is the Messiah. John explains that Jesus goes way beyond. It breaks the boundaries that the Jews had established for their Messiah. Jesus wasn't the warrior king the Jews expected to overthrow Roman rule. Yet he was the fulfillment of their prophecies and presented to the Jews the answer to how can we ever live a life without sin and honor all laws. Now Galatians 3 is very instructive here. I'll give you a second to turn there. Beginning in verse 2. So it reads, Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message that you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And now let's go to verse 10. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And now moving up to verse 19 or down to verse 19. Why then was the law given? Well, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. And now in verse 25. And now that the faith, that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So we learn in these verses that mankind cannot keep the law in our flesh. In trying but failing to live up to the law is a testimony for the need of a savior. The law gave no power to live righteously. Only through Christ and the Holy Spirit can we live righteously. The law shined a light on Jesus 
Yet the Jews still do not see that light. Now, there are many Jews for Jesus, and they have seen that light. The story of Moses is meant to show us the story of the gospel. The redemption of the Jews from bondage in Egypt is a foreshadowing of the redemption of the world from the bondage of sin and death. And the true and better Moses has come in the name of Jesus Christ. There was never new life in the Jews awaited Messiah. Life is only through the saving grace and truth and mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus declares in Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And so now we come to the end of Moses' life. In Deuteronomy 31, the Lord said to Moses, you are about to die and join your ancestors. And Moses' death is told in Deuteronomy 34. You may want to turn there because we're going to be reviewing a few verses in a moment. Moses went up to Mount Nebo, N-E-B-O, and the Lord showed him the whole land of Canaan. And then the Lord said to Moses, this is a land I promise an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. I have now allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you will not enter the land. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. And the Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. And Moses' body has never, has never been found. Now, when I read these verses in Deuteronomy 34, I first think about, as I think many of you must, how sad and unfair it seems that it was for Moses after 40 years to not be able to enter the promised land. And then I think about the relationship that he had with God. And I have a different thought about what was going on in Moses' mind as he rested on Mount Nebo, gazing out on the land of Canaan and knowing that the end was near. You know, I visualize him sitting there, looking out and reflecting on this incredible journey and how God has been with him every step of the way. And it has been difficult and it has been wonderful and now if God posed the question to Moses and said, Moses, it's okay if you want to go spend a couple more years in this land of Canaan, it's all right. Or you can come and be with me now in heaven. And I think Moses would not have flinched. He would have looked at God and said, God, there is nothing in Canaan to keep me from wanting to be with you in heaven this day. I think about Moses and his journey in life and how it's about the journey, the challenges that we're going to face and the beautiful richness as Christians that we're going to experience as we go through life. And it's also about being active and being proactive to foster those experiences as Moses did once he trusted in God and surrendered to God and then the rest of his life was changed forever. And yes, his promised land of Canaan was before him. And yes, he wanted the Hebrews to enter the promised land. And yet it took 40 years and everything that Moses had to lead them. Even though he never made it into that promised land, he did find his promised land in the sense that he is home in heaven with the Lord. And while he had this in mind, his life was focused on trusting in the Lord. He wasn't every week and every month and every year saying, Lord, why are we in the wilderness for 40 years? He was trusting that the Lord had a purpose for what he was doing. And he used his time to lead, to gain wisdom, to build up others, the Levites, the priesthood, the people themselves. These were all these experiences that he had. And then God buried him, and his body has never been found. 
this marvelous journey. I think it's a beautiful picture about how Moses, when he accepted God's calling on his life in front of that burning bush with the angel of the Lord, that that was almost like him being saved, like us being saved. And then we spend the rest of our life in obedience, being, having surrendered our life to him and all the difficulties and all the challenges, yet through it all knowing that our journey is headed toward the promised land which for us is heaven, and yet not letting that keep us from, as Christians, living life to the fullest, doing everything we can in this life to follow God, not questioning, but surrendering, as Moses did. And I think the great story of Moses is a life surrendered. A man committed to his people, to others, a beautiful man of God, who truly was a hero of the faith. What a great example Moses is for us as we strive to devote our lives to Jesus. And in our unique circumstances where God has placed us to answer God's calling on our life to be heroes of the faith. And we will have the same assurance that Moses had that we have given our all for God's kingdom and at the right appointed time that this world has nothing left for us and we are ready to be in heaven. And I think this is a glorious picture for us at the end of our days, a life well lived, a life given in service to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we gaze out and up and we say to the Lord, as I believe Moses did, bring me home. Let's pray. Father God, we're just so uh, thankful that we can uh, just hear from your word, Father. We're so thankful for how it guides us and instructs us and Father, we thank you for the life of Moses and these other heroes of the faith. Father, just how they, end, they, just, uh, they show us how to be brave, how to be courageous, how to obey, how to trust, how to follow, how to not question. We see that, Father, they give us great examples of how to answer your call on our life. Father, give us strength this day to keep Jesus the focus of our lives. We ask this morning, Father, that you would go before us now. May our lives be dedicated to you and may you be glorified through us. We thank you for this morning and for this time. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.